0: This is From the River of Ghosts. Oh, hello. I'd like to tell you something. There's little Susie. (laughs) Isn't she cute? 1962, a hot summer day in the rolling western foothills of Appalachia in a place they call... The Steel Valley. It's a home movie shot by her Aunt Mary. Oh, there she is, playing with the ball, just having a great time, and then bang! Oh! Look at that! That little thug just knocked her over. A little jerk. A little brute. That's. That's me. Hmm. You know, it pains me each time I see this. this ghost. I wonder if Aunt Mary knew this as she was holding her camera on that hot summer day. Nearly 60 years later, a lot of water has gone downriver. I'm happy to say my sister is now my best friend. She's been so kind to me. (laughs) Far, far kinder than I deserve. There's a lot to be said for having people in your life who love you and forgive you and are really there for you people of the present, and people of the past. They are all right here, right now. You see, we are not separated by time, but linked by it. For what is time along the River of Ghosts? 1941, a small boy runs through the forest along the muddy Mahoning River. The boy runs barefoot through the woods. No shoes in the summer months. His mother, an Italian widow with a large family, saves money any way she can. Hey, Mania, why wear our shoes in the summer? He has feathers stuck in a bandana around his head. He carries a stick, pretends it's a bow. He's playing Indian Scout, just like he's seen in the movies. He plays wild Indian so much that everyone in the hills around here calls him Squanto. (laughs) Yeah, Squanto, after the Native American hunter who guided the pilgrims to their first Thanksgiving. Young Squanto stops beside a tree by the riverbank, and then he senses something something strange. He looks down and sees it. It's just lying there. It's an ancient flint arrowhead shot by a Native American hunter long, long ago who canoed right here along this river. The arrowhead could be from the ancient mound builders, a civilization so long gone that no one even knows their real name. Or it could be from a warrior of the Erie tribe, or Huron, or Chippewa, or most recently, the Massasagua Delaware. All of those great nations once canoed and hunted along here. Squanto picks this treasure up, takes it home, puts it in a cigar box. There's an old man in Youngstown with a box
1: of old arrow heads. He holds them very dear. Found through his lifetime along these river beds from tribes who once lived here and who laughed and loved at the same as you and me. By these rivers that meet the river that flows to the sea the river that blows to the sea.
0: One time, years and years later, Squanto and his son go searching for an ancient burial mound. It takes them hours to find. There are very few left. The vast majority have been plowed under, but they find it, standing on a ridge, overlooking the river, overgrown, neglected. Coming back down, they meet a woman who's lived just down the road her whole life, and she doesn't even know that that mound is there. People, families, nations, whole civilizations, they rise and fall, come and go. The Massasagua Delaware are now long, long gone from here. Pushed out, shoved out tricked out murdered out in their stead comes a flood of immigrants aliens who cut down the ancient canopy of forests and build rolling farms and little towns and fill them with lily-white blue-eyed anglo-saxons people of the word now meet Archie, he's the son of a master carpenter. His father, Matthew, had arrived in America when just a baby, brought over from Germany by his mother, a widow. He's an American success story of sorts. Matthew, a master carpenter and an owner of a fine mustache. Seeking work in the industrial boom of steel, he moves his family into this valley in Ohio where he passes his skills on to his son, the restless, red-haired Archie. Now meet Teresa. She's one of three daughters of a blacksmith named Frank Schmidt. Teresa and her sisters are brought up to be cultured, refined ladies of their day. Teresa is an artist. She paints on china and canvas. She also plays and teaches piano and the organ. She plays classical works, Tin Pan Alley songs, but mostly church hymns. She's very religious. She's also practical and sews clothes, tends a garden, and cans the fruits and vegetables she grows. In the future, she'll keep the family fed this way through lean times. It's a fitting match. On paper, Teresa and Archie, both of the same faith, same ethnic background. The daughter of a blacksmith, the son of a carpenter. By now, Archie, though a master plumber, is intent on making cedar wood canoes. Story goes, that's all he wants to do. It's his only real love. A canoe. Just one of the things taken from the Native Americans who once lived here. 1913 eccentric Archie marries level-headed Teresa at the wedding all the young people have a good old time Teresa and her girlfriends put on the men's coats and hats and smoke cigars not to be outdone the men put on the women's coats and hats transgressing gender roles in 1913 (laughs) what a laugh yes it's a very happy day down by the river Archie wrestles his new bride. He's laughing, but Teresa is not amused. No, sir, she's not amused at all. A harbinger of their future. No sooner are they married than Archie, in between his plumbing jobs, starts taking his canoes down to the river and disappearing for a day, two days, three, sometimes even more. Teresa discovers that Archie's lifelong dream is to go all the way canoe down that river to the muddy ohio and on to the mighty mississippi and ride that great artery down through the heartland to the open arms of the sea as was the way with good folks of their religion the children start arriving like clockwork Maybe he thinks it will give him lots of free time to canoe, but Archie decides to invest everything they have in a small farm.
1: I hear the spirits in the muddy waters. Mm -hmm. Listen close now, hear them laugh. And hear them cry Yeah, I hear spirits in the muddy waters Listen close now Hear them laugh and hear them cry To the open arms, they pull me close, bringing me home down long this old river ghost. Oh, wait for me by the buckeye tree, down long the riverside. sacred clay and sanctify my blocked ears and my blinded eyes I said take some sacred clay and sanctify my blocked ears and my blinded eyes Arms, oh, pull me close. Bring me home down on this old river ghost. Oh, wait for me by the bucket tree, down along that riverside.
0: The flood. The flood, the flood of newcomers, aliens, immigrants pouring into the valley, so many that by 1920, the immigrants outnumber the native-born by over two to one. And many of the native, lily-white, blue-eyed, 100% Americans, don't like it. So much so that in 1923, pouring into the valley from states all around are 20,000 members of the Ku Klux Klan giant crosses are burned in the neighborhoods and in front of the churches of the newly-arrived steel workers with their foreign ways odd customs broken english and strange religion 100 percent americans people of the word burning crosses having torch parades intimidation just to let these aliens know who's really in charge But these newcomers, they fight back. And throughout the valley, ten days of rioting and mayhem erupt. There are beatings, jumpings, stabbings, shootouts, bombings, barricades, buildings burned, broken windows, tires set on fire, tacks and broken glass spread on the roads. Klansmen pose as state police and set up roadblocks. They drag people with foreign sounding names from their cars. Many are hospitalized. A group of Irish guys arrive from Chicago. They have a plan and a box of dynamite. They discover the secret headquarters of the Klan. They break in. They blow up the safe to get the list. The list of all the clan members. They publish the list of names in their newspaper. Meanwhile, an unarmed black man is shot dead by police who otherwise stand by and do nothing. During this, Archie is out on a small farm, but he's been active. He's on a committee trying to set up his kind of church at a little crossroads just outside of town. In response, Archie and the committee have received all kinds of threats. The Klan don't want any more of those kind of churches polluting their 100% American neighborhoods. Then, late one night, long after the children have said their prayers, Archie and Teresa are awakened. Sounds of animals, restless, disturbed, coming from the barn. Something's afoot. Archie looks out the window. He sees a faint, flickering glow casting shadows across the farmyard. Shadows of men. Men in robes. Archie tells Teresa to stay with the children. He goes down to the kitchen. Then his daughter, Mary, the tomboy. She stumbles into the room. Rubbing her eyes, she sees her father loading his shotgun. What's going on, Dad? Shh! Be a good girl. Stay in the house with your mother, Archie whispers. Then he steps alone into the darkness. He walks slowly across the farmyard. From around the back of the barn, Archie can hear laughing and the sound of one of his canoes being busted up to make kindling. Archie slides slowly along the side of the barn. He levels the shotgun and jumps out. The story goes there's a man in town afterwards walking around with a real bad limp. But nothing is said. No charges are filed. But it was another 35 years before that lily-white, 100% American town allowed that kind of church to be built. And Archie and his farm? (laughs) Seems a lot of lily-white businesses would not deal with him afterwards. And he ends up losing the place. In fact, with Archie in charge, the family pretty much lose everything. Teresa blames Archie and his canoes for their grief. She writes in a letter, No, I won't try to commit suicide as your father does by going on these freakish canoe trips. It would be better if he would go to a doctor if he counts himself sane. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was a chip loose in his head. Today, we would probably say he was somewhere along the spectrum. Often up and disappearing, taking one of his canoes downriver. And when Archie is at home, he's constantly building things. Cabinets, furniture, rocking chairs, and, of course, canoes. The river flows on. Years go by and Archie begins losing his hearing and gets less and less plumbing work. These are the years when the weight begins to fall on Mary. The second daughter, the tomboy, level-headed, practical, inventive, good with her eyes and hands. Mary is so good at all things mechanical that she becomes an engineer. In fact, she is the only woman engineer in the history of the firm where she works. Now, the thing is, her middle name is Francis, in honor of Frank, her mother's father, the blacksmith. And she has always signed her name and gets paid as M. Francis. With her name same as a man, job same as a man, paid same as a man. And what she earns goes to the family. Unlike Archie, she is ever at Teresa's side. Now, when her baby sister Carol grows up and marries Squanto, and they have a son... Mary instantly becomes the favorite aunt. Since they all live in the same house, she is the little boy's second mother. Always into gadgets, Mary gets a camera. She shoots home movies. Mary shows the boy how to draw trees, tractors, barns, boats and canoes. He clings to her. He adores her. She gives the best hugs in the world. She encourages him, says he could be a real artist someday. She spends hours with him, letting him hammer nails and drill holes in a 2x4 just for fun. She shows him how to work a saw by putting your knee on the board to hold it steady. He calls her Mamie, Aunt Mamie. Mamie laughs a lot, smiles a lot, smokes a lot. One time, she gets a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and she records her nephew saying nursery rhymes. (laughs) Hearing your own (laughs) own voice back? (laughs) Why, it's a A crazy miracle. miracle. This is real magic. Laughter, fun, love, Aunt Mamie. And so the boy grows up along the river with his mom and dad, grandma, Teresa, granddad, Archie, and Aunt Mamie. All natural, uninhibited, a free spirit, a beatnik, like Walt Whitman or Adam in the Garden. A left-handed boy in a right-handed world. Now his grandma has a big organ in the dining room. The organ is a heavy, solid, wooden thing with two banks of keys, a row of buttons to change the sounds, and even a bank of foot pedals. Mary bought it for her mother. His grandmother sets him up on the high bench and tries to teach him the proper fingering for scales. But the kid just wants to make weird, scary ghost sounds. The weirder the sounds, the more the boy laughs and laughs. Then he discovers the reverb button. Oh, 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 reverb. Oh, my, it's loads of fun making stuff up. His aunt Mamie gives him a cowbell. This bell, left over from when the family had the farm. The boy marches around the house banging on the bell. His mother screaming,
1: Go outside with that thing! You're driving me crazy! What is it with you in noise? You want to play that? Take it outside!
0: Guanto's time in the army was spent working in an office. So when he gets out of the service and starts working for the big steel company, he finds himself not on the mill floor, wrestling with the molten ash and poison smoke. No, he's up in the office, a junior clerk in a suit and tie on the bottom rung of management. He made it up, up to the bottom rung, the highest any WAP working in that steel mill had ever been before. Of course, They didn't know he was a WAP, because his family had changed their name to sound 100% American. One day, the boss shows Squanto how to file the employment record. The boss says, now, these workers listed here, they've been here a long time, so they're in line for promotion. But uh, these boys here with the little black pencil marks beside their names, they don't ever get promoted. Squanto asks, why not? Boss says. They're niggers. They don't get promotions. The boss was the boss. And that's just the way it was. With that new job in the office, Squanto and his wife, Carol, can finally get their own place. One night, soon after they move into their new house, Carol is sitting down on the sofa. Her eldest, now a rambunctious little boy, lies asleep, his head on his mother's lap, exhausted after being marched around by Archie, his grandfather. Archie, now much older and mostly deaf, came by earlier to visit. He's excited about the canoe he's just finished. It's a nice one, extra special. At the end of the evening, he says, I'm going downriver. His daughter says, Oh, okay, Dad. Then... The old man softly touches his grandson's forehead and is gone. Archie just up and left yet again, taking that new canoe. And he was gone three, four, five days. The family didn't think anything of it. Well over a week later, Betty, the oldest daughter, she comes into the room and she's as white as a sheet. Teresa and Mary want to know what's going on, and all Betty can say is... Dad's chair. Dad's chair. What about it? It's rocking. So? It's rocking all by itself. What? Mary gets up and goes into her father's room. She sees the rocking chair, a chair that Archie built in 1913, the year he was married. It's sitting motionless coming back into the room and lighting a cigarette Mary says, well, it's not rocking now, Betty. You're seeing things. Meanwhile, at the very same time over at their new house Carol is putting her little boy to bed. Reaching for the bedroom door at the top of the stairs she stops. She freezes. It makes no sense but she whispers into the darkness Dad? had and then it's gone later that night Squanto gets home and she mentions the encounter to him but he just laughs and tells her that she needs to get some more sleep the evening of the next day the family get word that the wreckage of Archie's wooden canoe was found on the banks of the Ohio River near where a huge dam is being built not far from the Mississippi. And three days later, they drag his body from the muddy river. After the funeral, Teresa writes, I never thought his end was so near. I wonder if he did. I wonder when he saw his doom right there, what came to his mind right then. God, home, or sorrow. I could never see him die in bed, as water and canoe was his first and only love. With Archie gone, it's Mary now that takes care of Teresa. But she's earning good money as an engineer. Mary's different. She never had any boyfriends. She likes machinery and gadgets and building and fixing things. But despite Mary's care, something is going wrong with her mother. Always a diabetic, Teresa's body is beginning to break down. The arteries are hardening in her legs. She's having real trouble walking. As these years go by, the strain on Mary becomes unbearable. She starts having strange ideas about people being after her, finding out things about her, cruel, Awful things, sinful things, things you go to hell for. Then, one day, her paychecks made out to M. Francis are cut in half. She wants to know why. It turns out that the accounting department at the engineering firm had always assumed that M. Francis, one of their top engineers, was a man. But a new woman in accounts that Mary had befriended revealed that the paychecks to M. Francis were in fact going to a woman. Well, don't you know that women are not paid the same as men? Mechanical engineer or not? So bam, wages cut. Couldn't do anything about it. Rules were rules. And that's just the way it was. 1967. Mary breaks down. She'd been carrying the burden for years, and she could not carry it any longer. Being the nearest family, Carol and her husband Squanto put her in a place called the Woodside, a special hospital, where the doctors assured them Mary would get the treatment she needs. Meanwhile, Teresa comes to live with Carol, Squanto, and the kids but she can't walk anymore. She's in constant pain, a lot of pain. Then comes the day. The boy watches his father carry his grandmother to their family station wagon, and Teresa laughing through all that pain as she's carried along. In the hospital, they make a desperate last ditch effort by amputating her legs but it proves too much for the old woman. And Teresa slips away. The boy cries and cries. His mother says, hey, it's okay. She was in so much pain. It's good that God brought her home. After they get back from the cemetery, the boy gets down on his knees beside the little table in the basement with his crayons and he swears, Grandma, I promise you someday I will be an artist just like you. A few months later, Mary returns home to them. Everyone is happy. The boy rushes to greet her. He wraps his arms around her. Time for a big hug! But her arms hang limply at her side. She doesn't recognize him. The joyful laughing Aunt Mamie is gone. In her place is a new Mary. Her body slumped in a chair. Her voice a numb monotone. Chain smoking. Cigarettes and ashtrays left to burn. Her eyes so distant as if Her real self is held somewhere far away, and in its place is a ghost. For the rest of her life, the old Mary never really returned. And it was only years later that he learned the truth of what happened to her. she was treated for her condition, over and over and over again, shocking her mind out of its disease, depression, paranoia, homosexuality, disease was a disease. Doctors were doctors And that's just the way
1: That it was That's just the way That it
0: was How can this world Be so unfair When you reach out for someone And no one is there Made to feel guilt And suffer
1: and shame Hiding love That you cannot name you were torn apart It was all just too much You're aching hard Long for someone to touch Or give me a home Where no one need hide You can be who you are And stand up with pride Forget your sorrows Your pain and your scars And I would love you Just as you are With every drop of blood That flows that goes to the
0: sea now let's go back back up river a bit september 1964. The first day of first grade. Got his brand new school uniform on. Little shiny black shoes, black trousers, white shirt, and the St. Dominic school tie. His teacher is a nun, Sister Mark. Black and white habit, huge wooden rosary beads clatter at her hip. She is a little woman, but to her class of six year olds, she is a giant. Sister Mark hands out laminated name cards. The cards have each kid's first name neatly printed on it. The first assignment. Everyone, look carefully at your name card. And I want you to take out a pencil and copy your names exactly as you see them on a piece of lined paper. Now, boys and girls, you all do know your names, don't you? Your first name, the name you were baptized with. When you are finished, Put your pencil down and put your hand up in the air like this. All right, you may begin. Day one, the boy is thrilled. This is going to be so easy. After all, he's a beatnik, an artist. Aunt Mary has taught him how to draw tractors and barns, dinosaurs and canoes. He's thinking, Mom and Dad are going to be so proud of me. He puts his head down and begins ever so carefully, ever so neatly. R. His most favorite letter. Why, it's the best letter ever. R. Then O-G-E-R. Look at that! The first kid done and it's perfect! Calligraphy first rate. The R's are especially stunning. Pencil slapped down. His hand shoots up into the air. Sister Mark comes over. Boy, is she going to be impressed. She looks at the boy, then at his name, then back at the boy. Come with me, she says. There is a strange tone in her voice, a tone he's never heard before. She brings him to the front of the class. She says, This boy has finished. Now, I want everyone to look at what he's written. What do you think of what he's done here, boys and girls? The boy looks out at his classmates, kids he's never even met before, and they all start laughing. Then Sister Mark says, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. You all see what this boy has done here. The boy's confused. As far as he's concerned, he's just printed his name perfectly, and the class is now laughing at him. Look at it, says Sister Mark. I said, look at it, demands the nun. I am, says the boy. Do you see? See what? Are you really that stupid, child? What? Are you? Are you that stupid? No, I'm not stupid, he says. Oh, yes, you are stupid, says the nun. Look, you have written your name backwards. She shoves the paper into the boy's face and he lurches back. In an instant, a wooden board appears in the woman's hand, a crudely crafted thing, like a plank with a handle. She shouts, Put your hands on the edge of my desk and stand still. You do not move until I say you move. And she starts striking him again and again, and the class is not laughing anymore. Sister Mark bellows, This is the paddle, everyone, and it's on my desk every day. Always waiting, waiting for any boy or girl here who disobeys me or who insists on being stupid like this boy here. Now go and sit down, you stupid child. The little boy hobbles back to his seat. He's whimpering, fighting hard to hold back his tears in front of his class on the first day of school. At supper that night at home, his folks naturally want to know how his first day went. The kid's ashamed. He says, I got hit by the nun. And the automatic response is, well, what did you do wrong? I don't know, says the boy. You must have done something wrong for the nun to hit you. I don't know, Mom, the kid says. Well, maybe you weren't paying attention. I was paying attention. You must have done something. Look, you're a big boy now, a student. You have to always obey the nun. Oh, yeah, here's the thing. Nuns are married to Christ, and the brides of Christ can do no wrong. Nuns were nuns, and that's just the way it was. And that first year, almost daily beatings, taunts, derision. Branded as the scapegoat by Sister Mark, he can make no friends. The kids are all afraid to even talk to him. And week after week, he trudges on. Deeper and deeper into that dark pit. After a month, he starts stuttering. Two months get so bad, he can't even put a sentence together. Aunt Mary and his grandma wonder what's going on. Mary's big hugs don't help. Three months in, the boy develops a strange skin condition all around his mouth. Dry, brittle, cracking lips. The cracks and the scabs frequently bleed him. To try and soothe the pain, the boy takes to licking his lips. But this only makes it worse and worse. His mom takes him to the doctor. The doctor prescribes a special cream, the boys to spread on his lips throughout the day. Concerned, his parents come into the school, and he and his folks sit down with Sister Mark. His mom explains that they need her help to ensure that their son does not lick his lips, and if he does, he must put this medicine on. Sister Mark assures his fretting parents, Oh, I'll take a special interest in your boy. The next day, Sister Mark stands in front of his desk. She suddenly stops talking and just starts staring. Staring at him, glaring, waiting, making the kids sweat, daring him. And sure enough, he licks his lips. And bang, she drags him to the front of the class. I told you not to and you disobeyed me. She starts beating the kid around the head with the board. He tries to get away, but she roars, Stand still! Stand still, you stupid little brat! Don't you dare move! Don't you dare! Then she grabs hold of the boy's face, squeezes it with all her might, and then smears the cream all around, making all the cracks bleed. Your parents want you looked after? I'll look after you! The savagery not finished yet, she pulls the wastebasket forward and twists the boy's arm. Get in, she said. Get in! I said get in and she shoves the little boy into the basket shouting right here in the garbage is the only place for this retard And for the rest of the day, he's made to stand in the trash in front of his class with blood all around his mouth Over the course of the year, he learns nothing, nothing Not how to read, not how to write, not how to add or subtract. In fact, he goes backwards. The once constantly clowning kid becomes quiet and withdrawn. He can barely speak. He stutters so much. He's always frightened, nervous, can't look people in the eye. His folks think it's because he's so ashamed of his disfigured face, how it looks all torn up with the brittle scabs and cracked lips. The end of first grade finally arrives, and his folks get a letter from St. Dominic's school asking for a meeting with the boy's parents. The folks find themselves sitting down with Sister Mark. The nun informs them that their son has effectively failed first grade. She tells them that their boy's progress is so poor that she considers him mentally retarded and she recommends that he go to a special institution where people like that can be looked after. Faced with this news, his mother is stunned to silence. But Squanto... (laughs) Squanto reacts differently. Kiss my ass. What? What did you say? You heard me. I said kiss my ass. There was nothing wrong with our boy until he came here. I'm his teacher. Not anymore. He's going to public school from now on. Come on, we're leaving. And that was it. They were gone. That summer, his mom sits the boy down at a picnic table in the backyard. Every morning of every day. June, July, August. Armed with a pile of Dr. Seuss books... She teaches her son to read. It's tough love. Stop squirming. Sit down. There's no getting out of this. Come on now. You can do it. Sound out the words. Come on. Sound out the words. Hop on pop. Green eggs and ham. One fish, two fish, red Fish, blue fish, the cat in the hat. With his mother's persistence and gentle encouragement, he discovers, (laughs) yeah, I can read. And his lips clear up. The stutter goes away. He starts laughing again. Love. Love can heal. Believe it. Even now, Dr. Seuss always makes him smile. And Sister Mark, she went on teaching. The church was the church, and that's just the way it was. That same summer, his mother takes a magic marker and draws a big street scene on an old white sheet. It's a picture of a little house behind a picket fence. It's a backdrop for a stage. They get a stepladder and hang it from the rafters in the garage. On the gravel floor, they mark out a little stage in front of the backdrop and then line up chairs for the audience. And then the boy and his friends put on their first show. The show? Well, really, it's just the kids singing bits of songs they know. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to hold your hand. Hello, Dolly. Ding-dong, the witch is dead. Then they act out scenes from the Wizard of Oz. He argues with his best friend right on the stage over who gets to be the Tin Man. The Tin Man, after all, gets to carry a big ax. The boy discovers more than anything else, it's loads of fun making stuff up. Oh yeah, making stuff up is where it's at. Who gave you courage when you felt afraid? Who stepped forward to keep you safe? Who picked you up when you fell down? Who searched for you till you were found? Who brought you home and held you close? You ain't alone on this river of ghosts. Who came running when they heard you cry? Who wiped the tears from your weeping eyes? Who sat with you and held your hand and tried their best? to understand who brought you home and held you close. You ain't alone on this river of ghosts. We've been listening to From the River of Ghosts written, composed and performed by Roger Gregg. Sound supervision was by Ruth Kennington. From the River of Ghosts by Roger Gregg was directed by Goretti Slaven. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. And if you'd like to listen back to this or any other dramas, go to rte.ie forward slash drama on one.
1: rte.ie forward slash drama on one.